everybody, welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. Starting us off, we just want to say thank you to Phil for joining us last week's episode. Uh, we talked all about Harry Potter. It was great to have Phil be flown into our, our studio. Uh, first class on Classic Gaming Brothers Airline. You know what the best part about getting flown to our studio? Uh, that you have to you get to parachute in, right? Because they have to drop them right over the studio. No, all the tickets are one way. <laughs> There's, not, there's nothing in the budget to send people back from where they came from. When Mike found out about that, he was pissed. Yeah, it happens. But then he just keeps coming back. Oh, I don't think he actually left. <laughs> no, I think Mike bought a house nearby. I think that's the sound that we hear when, like, we hear the construction going on. I think that's him working on, like, the den. Oh, that's, like, in a room just down the hall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, who knows? Maybe Phil will move in with Mike, and then we'll, we'll have constant guests coming in and out of the studio. Are they guests if they live here? That's the question. Yeah. So speaking of the question, what have you been playing lately? Well, Seth, after our interview with Phil, I got into the mood to play some Harry Potter video games. So I booted up Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets for the PC but specifically the extended edition mod. Ooh. Yeah. This was a mod that was uh, still being worked on but the most recent update came out this year and it's being created by modders Diving Deep 39, Luke Without a Cool Name, and Warrington. And it's a pretty fun mod of the PC version of the game. What it does is it adds in some cut content and new sections of the game, both in the story and in the kind of exploration sections that were just never implemented. For example, it adds the entire Hogwarts library that you could explore, which was not in the PC Harry Potter game, but it's now a new explorable section in Hogwarts where there are secrets and uh, interactable objects within the, the area. And they did a very good job implementing this so that it feels good to like, like it doesn't feel out of place basically. Um, They actually, what they did was they took, for the library at least, they took a door that never opens in the game and they just put the library essentially behind that door. So if you go to that door, it now opens and the library's there. They also did some other things such as add in some new cutscenes and the audio that they use for the cutscenes is actually taken from the console games, which have the same voice cast. And they also did some other adjustments that kind of make the game flow a bit closer to the book. So it kind of does its a good job at following the the pacing of the book now with still the kind of fun weirdness that you get in the game like with doing the spell challenges and bean trading which is always a good time it's it's overall a, a pretty good mod of the second harry potter game i recommend if you're a fan of the second harry potter game downloading it and giving it a shot it it certainly isn't a over the top mod it doesn't do too much that's out of the out of the ordinary but it does um, add in some fun elements was there any mods done for the first game there are a couple mods done for the first game that are mostly game mechanic fixing mods so one adds in the control scheme from the second game into the first game Uh, the first game has very tank like controls which we talked about the last episode you have to like pause and stop to cast spells where in the second game you can cast spells while moving or jumping so they added that into the first game to kind of make the game a bit more playable and there's a couple other mods that exist out there it's actually a pretty big modding scene surprisingly uh the games are built in the unreal engine so it's a pretty easy to accomplish modding i assume a lot of modders from russia are really into modding the game which is interesting but so that's what i've been playing seth what about you uh so recently i was in the mood to play a racing game i sometimes get in the mood to play a racing game so i just 
decided to take a journey on my Humble Bundle subscription to see if I had any racing games, and I did. So I downloaded Hot Wheels Unleashed, which was released in September of 2021, and was developed and published by Milestone SRL. So I paid $12 for my monthly subscription, and I think it just came in the last month, and part of that subscription was Hot Wheels Unleashed, and that's how I got it. And I booted it up, and the first thing that you interact with is a loot box, and you have to open three of them, and those are your starting cars. So your starting cars are random. I did get a car that looked like it was like a a Hot Wheels pizza delivery car. And so obviously that's the car I raced with. But you do also receive an achievement for opening your first loot box called The First One is Free. Which is kind of an obnoxious name for an achievement. Because that implies that all of the other ones are not free. (laughs) Then it drops you into a tutorial map. And the racing is as you would expect kind of arcadey. You have boost mechanics and you have drift mechanics and the drift gives you your boost. Once I figured it out and kind of got the hang of it, I was easily placing first. Like I at one point in time spun around and there were no cars around because I was so far ahead. The map is really cool. The graphics are really good. And like it's a very Hot Wheels style map where you see like the large items strewn about. There are also a few different games modes that you can play uh, and you can customize your home as well with upgrading your like decorations in your house you have like a kitchen and a living room and stuff like that and you can also view your hot wheels up pretty close and you can modify your hot wheels with like changing the the liveries or what have you on them my issue is that there the amount of dlc and pay content that is associated with this game so Let's break this down. There is in-game currency that you can you can buy. And you can use that in-game currency that you buy to buy blue crates. The base game is $50. They have a collector's edition and a ultimate edition that are $70 and $90 respectively. Okay. Now, they also have three season passes that will unlock more cars, tracks, and game modes for $30 a piece. There's some additional expansion packs. So they have season passes and then expansion packs that do not line up as the same that are $15 each. There are racing packs that are like a racing series, which are different than the expansions and the season pass. And that is six dollars and then you can buy individual cars between one dollar and three dollars Altogether, there's about 66 different dlc and to buy just the dlc to get it all would be 230 dollars nice. on top of the possibly 90 dollars that you're spending for the game so 310 I'm sure there is some duplication within those, but let's just put it at a conservative $200. And first of all, I don't know if a Hot Wheels game is worth $200. I also can in good conscience condone a game that is extremely easily marketed to children that has not only a loot crate gambling experience within the game, but also over 50 DLCs. And it's kind of just, I think, poor form. It's scummy. It is. It is. And um, this is not any of our byway pass or our retro rewind or any where we rec- make a recommendation. But I, just as a forewarning, Hot Wheels Unleash 
if you get it for free and you play around the base game and don't spend any money and just earn all in-game currency, have fun. Because also all of your cars have levels up to 50 um, that you have to like uh, get points for as well to unlock. So you have to earn in-game currency to unlock all your cars to get to level 50. So if you really like Hot Wheels, you check it out, I guess. But not, I don't know. It's, I wouldn't, I can't condone a game that is got that much uh loot crate and microtransactions that's fair so now we're gonna go to a game that doesn't have any loot crate or microtransactions well does the mmorpg have we're not talking about the mmorpg that's okay yeah so it's a series that currently has microtransactions but... correct <laughs> but this particular game does not correct. have microtransactions okay. yes, that's accurate and in fact it did have one dlc only on the xbox and we'll Ooh. talk about that and it was free now we talked about bioware back in episode 138 which was aptly named the bioware episode so in the event that you want to learn about bioware as a team and as their history head on back to episode 138 and check Check that episode out. Now, the Bioware team, they worked on a number of games. Uh, Some of them we actually already talked about as well, such as our Baldur's Gate episode. Whereas there are other games that they've worked on that we have yet to touch on, or we've touched on them very briefly. Though they probably do have episodes dedicated to them in the future, because I'm at least a pretty big Bioware fan, so they tend to creep in every so many months. Yeah, I own a lot of the Bioware games. I haven't finished them, but I've played a bunch. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this episode, we'll be talking about one of their games that was arguably one of their best games, and really set the standard for the future of role-playing games. And that game is Star Wars, The Knights of the Old Republic. Or, as I like to refer to it as, KOTOR. I think other people do too. I don't think it's just you. but No, I'm not the only person that refers to it as. There is KOTOR, and then there is TOR. KOTOR is the first video game. You can also have KOTOR 2. And then TOR is referring to the MMO, which yes. the MMO does have microtransactions. Zach, do you have any memories of KOTOR or Knights of the Old Republic? Beyond my experience... Uh, playing it a bit i remember you playing it growing up i remember you playing it on your computer which was different than the family computer because we at one point had like our old computer that i think i used a lot and then you had your own computer that you built i remember you playing it and i remember watching you play it and i remember not really understanding it because i understood what rpg games were but i mostly understood rpg games from like a 16-bit sega genesis or snes level and to see like a 3d rpg game i was like shouldn't this action be actiony and i think i also like at the same time i think we also had a couple other action-based 3d games i think like like one of the jedi knight games and i think i remember being like i feel like there should be like more action in this game that i'm seeing because this game seems very turn-based yeah and i think we actually acquired jedi outcast prior to knights of the Old republic yeah we had nice we didn't have knights of the old republic on release we had it like or not immediately on release like we had it because i got it i think for a discount we definitely had because i remember we had jedi outcast and we also had Star Trek Elite Force before we had Old Republic. Yeah, I I mean, I really loved Knights of the Old Republic. I uh, I beat it twice. I, I beat it once on the light side and once on the dark side. I played through it a lot. I've tried to restart. You can get it on your phone and it's, yeah, it's uh, on, on the Switch. But uh, I've, I started a game on my phone. Didn't go too great. Mostly, it actually plays really well on the phone. The problem I had was I really poorly optimized my character build and he 
it just stunk. So at some point in time in Knights of the Republic, in the relatively beginning of the game, you become a Jedi um, as part of your progression. And the Knights of the Old Republic is actually based on the Star Wars D20 system when it comes to how the game is played. So they have like, it's essentially D&D in Star Wars universe. There's like D20s for attack rolls. Uh, you get like a positive armor class bonus. They have a, I think they have two different armor class. They have like an energy bonus, like an energy shield. And then they have like a regular bonus, like their regular armor class. And they have different classes than D&D classes. You have like scoundrel, soldier, like a tech class. And the correct way to play Knights of the Republic is to play a soldier and never level up your character. Because if you don't level up your character, you can collect levels. I think there's only one level you have to take because the game won't progress unless you level up because it's teaching you how to level up. But you play as a soldier and you don't level up as pretty much as far as you can. So then you get an additional two levels of Jedi, <laughs> which is what you want to do. And then you can pick Jedi Guardian Counselor, the Jedi Sentinel. And the time that I played it on my phone, I made a scoundrel and was also trying not to level up my scoundrel character and it was not great. So maybe I'll restart it as I often say with a, a soldier and properly play through the game again. So how did Knights of the Republic come to be? Back in 2000, after the release of Neverwinter Nights and the sell-off of the D&D license, Bioware came out and announced that they were partnering with LucasArts and they were going to be creating a Star Wars role-playing game, and it would be primarily for the Xbox, but would also see release on the PC. Amazingly, Bioware made an excellent decision right at the get-go with working with LucasArts. So what ended up happening was towards the end of 1999, LucasArts approached Bioware and said, hey, it's the end of 1999, beginning of 2000, we just released Phantom Menace, and we're working on episode two, Attack of the Clones, which was due out in 2002. So LucasArts said, hey, Bioware, you guys could do an episode two tie-in game. That would be great. And it could come out alongside the movie. And wouldn't that have been something? A Bioware tie-in game? That would have been really interesting and i don't i wonder what that world would have looked like the changes that could have happened if we saw them do a tie-in game instead of what they ended up doing because they ended up actually essentially lucasarts said yeah you could do the tie-in game and obviously the tie-in game not only are you kind of literally tied to what you're making a game about you also have a, a pretty strict deadline right <laughs> it's like you need to make this game about this particular item and also you need to make it release around the time that the movie comes out so it's relevant and so they're like so that's what we would want you to do and Bioware said specifically the CEO Raymond Mizuka said wasn't really interested in doing an episode 2 game I don't blame him and LucasArts gave them another option why don't you set the game 4,000 years before the events of The Phantom Menace because that at that point in time, that time period wasn't really covered by any of the canon. And LucasArts was pretty liberal with giving people canon. So there were books, films, and comics all blessed by LucasArts. And it just so happened that 4,000 years in the past wasn't really covered. There was actually a comic series in that time period that Knights of the Republic would take place shortly thereafter. But if they did it far enough in the back, they wouldn't really be trampling on something some other canon or have to worry about some other canon so bioware went off and did just that they decided to create something that was 
kind of like the movies, but different enough so that it could be set in the same world, but in this distant, distant past. All the concept work for the game had to get sent to the ranch, Skywalker Ranch, which was where George Lucas got everything done. And this was basically so that George and the LucasArts team could sign off on the designs. But the feedback they received was overall minor, and the suggestions coming out of Lucas was feedback that was ultimately well-received and ended up helping make this game a more true Star Wars title. I think that they would have probably gotten a lot more feedback if they were doing an episode two game, like they would have been a little nitpicky, but like 4,000, like George Lucas is like, I don't really care. <laughs> now it's good that the relationship between Lucas and the Bioware team was good because a relationship between a licensor and a licensee really does need to be close or there will be constantly reworking coming from both sides. But thankfully, Bioware and LucasArts really meshed well together, and they went on to design a game that they were aiming to be for around 60 hours in gameplay, which, funny enough, was longer than most of the Star Wars games that were out at the time, um, but quite short compared to other Bioware titles. For example, Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate 2 amount to about 300 hours altogether, or more, depending on how much time you want to spend in them. So who was behind this Star Wars endeavor? Well, Seth would say it was the holy trifecta of game production. Casey Hudson as the director, James Olin as the designer, and Drew Carpetian as the writer. Part of the development that was the toughest for the team to work on was redefining the combat system that they were so used to working on. In Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter Nights, the combat was strategy focused, and the player tended to spend most of their time thinking about how to manage the combat. With KOTOR, the team wanted the experience to be more theatrical versus those strategy focused games, though they still wanted to have strategy in the game, because the game is still an RPG game, so there still needs to be some level of strategy. What they decided to do was introduce this ability to seamlessly stack attack actions on top of each other and be able to watch the combat unfold. Unlike in Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter Nights, where you had to dictate most of your combat actions almost turn by turn, KOTOR had an action queue system that was readily available and allowed the player to queue up various different actions easily. Then, when they were ready, they could unpause the game and watch the animations go about. This balanced the strategy and the cinematic combat that they were looking for and ended up being a huge win for the team. KOTOR would ultimately come out on PC and Xbox and they chose these systems because of A, Bioware's familiarity with PC development and their familiarity with the Xbox. They felt that they understood the Xbox more intimately versus the hardware of the PS2 and the GameCube. And with that understanding, they could push the Xbox harder. Interestingly, they would end up having to make concessions on the Xbox when it came to graphics because the game has a pretty extensive AI, scripts, models, and an expansive environment that pushes on the Xbox in a non-traditional way where it's not the graphics that's causing the Xbox to, to chug. It's maybe the AI that it's trying to compute. So they would end up having to pull the graphics a little bit back on the Xbox versus the PC release. Now, they worked in the Odyssey engine, which was an evolution of the Aurora engine, which was used for Neverwinter Nights. They essentially took the Aurora engine and used it as a shell and reworked the entire thing and named it the Odyssey engine. And for its time, 
time, the Odyssey engine was a highly detailed engine that would even capture things that were novel for the time, which really are part of the course for today, but it was able to like pick up on grass flowing in the wind or sand or dust flowing in Tatooine or little things like poofing up off your character's feet as they walked across um, certain landscapes. Things that we take for granted today, but were... Um, pretty detailed for the time period. The PC version and the console versions did differ a little bit as developers thought about how people interact with their PC and their Xbox. When you play an Xbox, it's primarily played on a television, which generally in houses, the television is set back a bit farther than your computer screen. Whereas when you play on a PC, you're usually about a foot away from your screen. So the console version had more time dedicated to up-close action and they really made sure that the game rendered well. Whereas the PC would get higher resolution and sharper objects and the textures so that you could essentially view more crisper versus seeing stuff up close rendering, which as a, a PC player, I appreciate. Higher resolutions are always are better, in my opinion, especially since I sit very close to the screen. That's why you wear glasses. That's why I wear glasses. Additionally, the PC version ended up having one more location, the Yavin Station, more NPCs, items, and weapons over the Xbox version on release. However, the Xbox version would get a DLC for this additional items that were included in the PC version for free later as long as you were able to connect to the internet to download it through Xbox Live. So you guess you did have to pay for it a little bit because you had to pay for the Xbox Live service. Now the story, and thus the sound for Knights of the Old Republic, was intense. Uh, there were 300 characters in the game with 15,000 spoken lines of speech. In fact, the only person who doesn't speak in the game at all is you. And the responses you give are actually silent selections. So yes, your character speaks, you just never hear them speak. Voice department manager Dara O'Farrell noted that it would take 10 5-inch binders to contain the entire script for KOTOR. They had about 100 voice actors, which they would duplicate voice voices for minor background characters throughout the game, just in different parts to make sure the player didn't realize it was the same voice. Some of the main stars were the late Ed Asner, the late John Kygan, Raphael Sabarge, Ethan Phillips, Jennifer Hale, and Phil Lamar. They would go on and start the voice production six months prior to the beta release of the game. They were given about 90% of the script to work with, with the rest of the script being given to them in what was known as pickup sessions, which is when the voice session right at the end uh, that would take care of any issues or any needed additional voice work. They usually would record record a game like KOTOR in seven weeks. However, they didn't. They recorded it all in five weeks. Uh, there was a stretch of two weeks where they recorded all day and all night. Each of the hundred voice actors had to be recorded one at a time. Since the game was extremely non-linear, it would be difficult to record multiple scenes with the same voice actor as the party composition might change. Most of the work was recorded in English as it would end up being Galactic Basic that they were speaking. However, they do have voice work that represented a tenth of the script in Huttese, and they actually translated the English into Huttese for the game using Ben Burtt's Star Wars Galactic Phrase Book and Travel Guide. I was reading about um, the voice department manager, Mr. O'Farrell there, and he said that uh, some of the actors were good at hoodies, some of them were not. And those who were not had to do essentially the mimicking where they just repeat the voice director every single line of dialogue. He had to personally, the voice director, had to read 150 lines of dialogue that were just 
just then read by the voice actor after he said it so that the actor would just repeat it into the microphone. Nice. Now, hot off the heels of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Jeremy Soule composed the game's score. However, he had to design an orchestral score without the ability to have an orchestral score. During the time they were working on this game, the height of technology was an 8 megabit per second MIDI system. So Jeremy would have to essentially fake an orchestra by writing the various musical segments and timing it right so it sounded like they were playing together. Now to talk about the game, the game takes place, as we discussed, 4,000 years to the events of Episode 1, The Phantom Menace, and follows the conclusion of the comic series Star Wars tales of the jedi essentially the background is that the mandalorian warriors invaded the republic and the jedi were wishy-washy about getting immediately involved in defending the republic because honestly that's what the jedi do they are very wishy-washy about doing anything and eventually a couple of jedi decide to go on by themselves and fight the mandalorians and they go on to win those jedis were revan and malik after they declared victory revan and malik then went off to the great unknown into the unknown region and they disappeared for one year. When they came back, they came back with a massive Sith armada, and they decided they were going to invade the Republic. The Jedi then jumped Revan and took him out, and Malak became the master, since his old master was dead, and Darth Malak would go on to take over the galaxy. The game ends up... I mean, we should put, I guess... Maybe a spoiler warning. I mean, this game is old. Knights of the Republic is a 20-year-old game, and we're going to spoil the twist. If you haven't played Knights of the Republic still, then you probably don't want to. But if this this episode inspires you to play Knights of the Republic and you don't know the twist, you go ahead and you can skip to after we're done talking about this section. Yeah, here. and Seth will put in the um, the notes, the timestamp for when the section's over. Now, the game starts off with being on a Republic ship called the Endar Spire, and Malak is attacking because he he wants the cargo aboard which is a jedi and you have to specifically it's jedi bastila shan and you have to fight to get to your escape pod with this guy named trask who trask is pretty much the embodiment of a tutorial and he ends up not making it you then meet up with a guy named karth onasi and together you escape the Endar Spire and crash land on the planet of Terrace, which is like Coruscant, but not. Uh, it is a civilization that has been built on top of lower class people, and the further you down you descend under the city, the more oppressed and poor and chaotic the world gets. Uh, it is definitely a planet of the haves and have-nots, and there is also a Sith blockade, so you can't just like leave the planet because that would skip the plot that you would be doing. So you essentially have to stay on Terrace. You and Karth team up and you go rescue Bastila Shan. Uh, and along the way, you meet some fun people who join your group. And we'll talk about the fun people later on. Eventually, you and your fun group escape Terrace. Uh, you go to the Jedi Temple and you become a Jedi, which is 100% of the reason you should never level up until you get to this point in the game. You then learn about the Star Forge and you have to engage in a multi-worldwide adventure in tracking down the Star Forge through visiting multiple different planets and helping those planets with their woes. Uh, eventually you do get captured by Darth Malak towards the end of the game and he reveals that you are Darth Revan. All of this time you eventually escape from him and your escape is helped along by Bastila staying behind to help facilitate you getting out of there. Uh, you regroup as a group. You inform everyone you're um, Darth Revan. Many of them are mostly okay with it. Uh, Kartho Nassi is really the only guy who doesn't particularly like the news. He also gets told by somebody else, Admiral Saul, 
and but everybody else in the group either thinks it's cool or doesn't care you then uh regroup your group as it were then you go back and go and fight darth malik you then go through the final and you encounter bastila who has become evil and you have to either kill her or you can redeem her then you go take on darth malik you kill him and there are two different ways the game can end there is the light side and the dark side if you are light side throughout the game you can kill Bastila or you can redeem her. You end up saving her. You then defeat Malak and you destroy the Star Forge. If you go dark side, instead of killing or redeeming her, you just team up with Bastila. You then kill Malak and together you take over the Star Forge and you become the Dark Lord of the Sith again. And both of them have awesome, awesome cinematic movies at the end depending on which side you go. The sequel, KOTOR, The Sith Lords, assumes that the light side was chosen. It also assumes that Revan is a male, and this game is interesting, and we'll get through to the companions part, but generally the canon is that Revan is male and has a relationship with Bastila. The companions that join you are pretty fun, and some of them are really the best that gaming can offer. They all have their own personal plots and issues going on. First off, Carthonassi. Which, to me, sounds like George Lucas gave them a list of character names, and there was a Darth Onassi on there, and they just accidentally had a typo. <laughs> but Carth Onassi is a Republic pilot, who's the companion you are with for a pretty long time, and has an underlying vengeance issues since uh, one of his greatest heroes betrayed him and killed his family. He is one of the female romance options, so if you're playing as a female main character, you can romance Carthonassi. Mission Vow is a Twi'lek teenage thief. She's fun and hangs out with Zalbar, who we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, you recruit her in the Undercity of Terrace, and she is generally the hope and soul of the group. Zalbar is a Wookiee who you rescue, and he ends up pledging a Wookiee life debt to you. He is strong because he is a Wookiee. <laughs> yeah, he's great. His personal plot involves, like, his family on Kashyyyk. Also, I think, oh, I think Zalbar was kicked out of the Wookiee culture because he attacked somebody with his wookie claws which you're not allowed to do next up is bastila shan who we've already kind of talked about she is a jedi and the male only romance option while she is with your group uh which is not often because she's off doing her own jedi things uh, she's or captured she's a, a pretty strong member and has a force battle meditation ability that is unique to her in the game jolie bindo is our next character uh, this is a gray jedi which are kind of a it's like a controversial topic now i noticed in the star wars fandom but gray jedi are essentially jedi who decided they weren't either light or dark side and jolie is like this he has decided he is neither light nor dark and is a hermit and he knows a lot of stuff despite the fact he might not appear to know a lot of stuff. We have T3M4, which is a R2-D2-like astromech droid. T3M4 actually kind of looks weird. He has like stilt legs. And a, like a flat round head. Yeah, a flat round head. We got Candorous Ordo next. He's a, he's a Mandalorian mercenary who is very Mandalorian, which is awesome since this game came out well before the Mandalorian television show. So it was kind of cool to get a bit of Mandalorian lore that we did not have before because the Mandalorians were kind of this mythic yeah. race that we really 
really only saw with Boba Fett and some comic books and stuff. And Candorus does not wear, in the first game, he does not wear armor nor a helmet. And he just rolls around with his buzz cut and his machine gun. Like nice. he, has a, like, he has like a machine cannon gun. Then we have Johanni, who's a Cathar Jedi who fell to the dark side and you are tasked with taking her out. But you can spare her and forgive her and she will be redeemed. She is also a female romance option. Then we have HK47, named after the writer Drew Carpetian's billiard team. Uh, there were four guys with the last name H and one guy with the last name K, and they were going to call themselves HK41, but 47 is a better number than 41. The four guys all had the last name, not only beginning with H, they're, all of them had the last name of Harrison. So Drew in his life knew four four guys and i don't know if they were related like four guys with the last name harrison now hk47 is an assassin droid uh that you pick up and bring around with you and hk47 is hilarious and um likes to call human meatbags uh, what i like about hk is that whenever you see images like promotional images for knights of the old republic often put him next to t3m4 and make it look like they're the, like the r2d2 c3po yes but yes. hk is not like c3po <laughs> HK is like triple uh, zero or C3PX from the classic old canon who was the evil C3PO. But T3M4 is not like BD10, which I think if he was, that would be even better. Yeah, oh, that'd be great. Now, how did this game do? Seth, do you want to take us into those numbers? Sure. The game would actually get delayed a few times, which is good. Well, it's good that they didn't do a episode two tie-in movie <laughs> because the game was originally supposed to be released late of 2002 but wouldn't actually get released until july 9th of 2003 for the xbox and november 11th for, of 2003 for the pc it would sell within the first four days 250,000 copies on the xbox making it the fastest selling xbox game at the time and the only reason it was the first four days that they sold is because they sold out uh within two weeks they would sell an additional 20,000 units bringing up the total for two weeks worth of sales to 270,000 units. By October, prior to the PC launch, the Xbox game would have sold 600,000 copies worldwide. And by July of 2006, the Xbox copy sold 1.3 million copies and would go on to earn $44 million. The PC version would go on to sell well, but not as well as the Xbox version. It would be the third best-selling computer game during its debut. Uh, however, by August 2006, it would have sold 470,000 copies copies and have earned 14.7 million in the U.S. market. As of 2007, uh, Knights of the Old Republic as a franchise sold 3.2 million units both across Xbox and the PC worldwide, which is pretty solid for uh, for an RPG, I would say. Yeah, I think so too. KOTOR sold well enough to get a sequel in the second installment in the video game franchise of Knights of the Old Republic called Knights of the Old Republic 2 The Sith Lords, which was released December 6, 2004 for the Xbox and February 8, 2005 for the PC. Bioware wanted time to work on some other projects, so they handed the job of development of KOTOR 2 to Obsidian. KOTOR 2 deserves its own episode in its own right, but be that as it may, it's still a great RPG that was ultimately rushed. There was also going to be a third game 
KOTOR 3. However, it would end up getting cancelled. It unfortunately had most of the story, quests, characters, and items pretty much all fleshed out, and you can actually see concept art from it in the book Rogue Leaders, the story of LucasArts from 2008. It would have brought us to destinations such as Talaran, Rhodia, and even a city populated by Mandalorians. It was cancelled as they were cutting projects for corporate positioning. Now, in 2011, Star Wars The Old Republic was released and takes place 300 years after KOTOR 2 and is an MMORPG with numerous expansions released for it, including one that was released earlier in 2022. After 10 years, this game is still chugging along. I mean, the resurgence of all the Disney Star Wars properties has really pushed the Old Republic to the limits in regards to like resurgence of population because they're the only, like beyond Fallen Order, which was a new game. I'm trying to think if there's any other new Star Wars games. I mean, there's the two Battlefronts, the new ones. Yep, yep. So they have the Battlefronts. But they're all... Those are all not a me playing as a jedi no no yeah jedi fallen order is the only one that's like jedi based it's also one of the few pre disney purchase properties that survived the purchase because when disney uh, acquired the star wars ip in i think it was what 2012 mm-hmm. uh, they tanked not only LucasArts but a majority of star wars projects that were in development such as 1313 a darth maul game and a couple other things that were yeah. supposed to be released and i really think it's because toward had been the successful thing and KOTOR was so successful that it partially was probably one of the reasons why Disney let it continue because Disney could have said no they could have probably stepped in and said we're closing this down because it's their IP even if they're not doing anything with the old Republic necessarily right now I mean there's a couple of like they have like the High Republic stuff and Acolyte I think is supposed to be in the old Republic High Republic era but um they could have stepped in and said you know we're we're tanking this and we're doing our own thing but they they never did finally in 2021 there was was announced a remake of the original game by the company Asper, which is rumored to be both games developed from the ground up using updated technology. However, unfortunately, a number of the actors from the original game will not be able to reprise their roles because of either medical reasons, such as uh, Tom Kane uh, being unwell or due to deaths however there have been other issues as well uh, such as asper announcing in july of 2022 that they were firing a number of people and delaying the game indefinitely in august of 2022 saber interactives european studio officially took over development of the game from asper so who knows what is next for kotor the remake i remember when the announcement came about and everyone was super excited they're like whoa it's bad that it was like dead silence and then all this news like dropped this year there was some like crazy stuff going on at the leadership at uh aspire where like multiple executive leaders were fired and stuff like that now that will be our kotor episode right yes yes it will be that was fun so look forward in the future for an episode on kotor 2 yeah we're probably due for like an obsidian dedicated episode too, talking about their company now we're going to get into our retro rewind segment the retro rewind segment seth uh, this is what we're going to do. Seth, I want you to go first and talk about the game I gave you. Sure. As you may know, our last episode we had Phil, so we didn't talk about those games that were assigned to us. But then if you go back to that previous episode, Zach didn't actually give me a game. He then messaged and let me know that he didn't give me a game. So he wanted me to play Garfield caught in the act for the Sega. He, however, didn't specify which Sega. So there were two Garfield caught in the axe, one for the Sega Genesis 
and one for the Sega Game Gear, and also one for the PC. The Sega Genesis was developed by Sega Interactive. Nova Trade International did the Game Gear, and Point of View did uh, did the development for the PC. I ended up, I guess by accident, playing Garfield Caught in the Act for the Sega Game Gear. I played using a browser, so there might have been some sort of input lag, or now thinking back to it, it was probably just because it was the Game Gear version. It was a little tough. Uh, you get 10 hits and 3 lives, and the general plot of the game is that you're trapped in a television, you have to travel through various levels in time. Uh, the first level of the Game Gear version, you're set in the dinosaur period, where there is like a John dressed as a caveman running around, which is pretty funny. This game involves you throwing coconuts at enemies who uh, just pop up and attack you, and you mostly spend your time platforming from platform to platform across vast holes in the ground. Really big holes in the ground. And they wouldn't be too bad uh, except every time you fall in, you slowly drift back to the spot where you jumped in. Even if you're just inches away, it's just bad. I cleared a giant hole and i was super stoked it took me a little while guess what another giant hole just ahead i was so mad so if you love garfield and you love annoying platformers with really bad jump controls you might like this garfield for the game gear probably not that it's bad um i did actually end up then playing a little bit of garfield caught in the act for the sega genesis that's actually just a like a mascot like a standard mascot platformer where you can hit things with your staff or you can shoot your like a skull boomerang thing the first level is a uh, a count dracula level and there's a lot of enemies everywhere the controls are a lot better he doesn't do a weird jump like he does in the game gear he jumps normally in the game Game Gear, he does this weird, like, crawl up where he crawls up onto each of the platforms in the Genesis game. He just jumps normal. So, yeah. So, if you do want to play a Garfield game, I would recommend playing Garfield Caught in the Act for the Sega Genesis, not for the Game Gear. Fair enough. Zach, next week, I want you to play Where in Time is Carmen Sandiego, just right on back to the edutainment. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that's what you get for giving me a vague sega reference you're welcome now seth had me play a game called castle of the winds specifically part one there is a part two castle of the winds was a game developed in 1989 and released for windows 3.1 now i have a pc emulator but i don't have one running windows 3.1 and i didn't really feel like setting up windows 3.1 through dosbox so i found castle of the winds available to be played online it's actually available on archive.org so you can uh, check it out if you would like to as well. Castle of the Winds feels like Yoda's story, but as a fantasy, it is a tile-based roguelike game that feels exactly like a tile-based roguelike game would feel in 1989. So it uses like the UI and stuff from Windows 3.1, so it just feels like you're using a desktop application. Like, I half expected this game to also have a calculator inside of it. That's what it felt like to me. It also was about as exciting as a calculator, uh, because I enjoy roguelikes. I like playing roguelikes. I did not like Castle of the Winds. I did not think it was very fun. For one thing, there was no sound in this game at all, which was kind of obnoxious and unfortunate. Uh, it was also lame in the sense that at one point I got stuck in a cave because my character just 
stopped moving properly and it just didn't seem to play the way I think it's supposed to play maybe. I don't know if it was the emulation. I don't know if I'm just bad at this game but in many ways I think Castle Winds it just doesn't hold up the way it might. So does Castle Winds hold up? No, Castle the Winds does not hold up. So Seth, next week you're going to play James Bond Jr. for the Super Nintendo. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Now, for those of you at home who want to get in touch with the Classic Gaming Brothers, feel free to reach out to us. You can email us at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. You can also send us uh, a message through our website, classicgamingbrothers.com. You can also check out our website and just listen to the episodes there. We have a nice little lounge that you can chillax in. Uh, you can also reach out to us via our social media our facebook instagram twitch and twitter our facebook instagram and twitch are classic gaming brothers and our twitter is cg brothers pod and uh with that i think that's everything seth am i forgetting anything don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i've been seth and i've been zach and we've been the classic gaming brothers that's, that's right, right. <laughs>